Welcome to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hello there, and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. The sun is shining. I'm again back with Yusip Voine. What's up? Hey, Toby, I'm afraid to tell what, what number the episode is going to be because I am not sure are we going to publish this next or something else next. So it's something this is a- like 20, 25, 24, 32, something like this. Yeah, something like this. So Helsinki is nice today. It's plus 10 Celsius in Fahrenheit. I think it's about 65, perhaps. That's, that's out from my heart. I can't really convert in my head. Uh, so Helsinki finally getting some sun after six months of no sun. So I've been on vacation for about two weeks now. So this is my winter vacation. And since I combined that with the Easter holidays, I actually get two full weeks, which has been really nice. But at the same time, it feels like an eternal Saturday. So with kids at home and doing homeschool and daycare is closed. So every day is the same. It's getting up early, and early for us is about 6.45. Breakfast, going out with the kids to push some energy out. Then then lunch, nap time, snack time, going out. Dinner, spending time perhaps going out. Supper, bedtime. And then you have like 25 minutes. You get to do whatever you like, but you're too tired. So you sit on the sofa, you open Netflix, you browse through the collection of the latest whatever they have. You choose not to watch anything. You close the TV. You go to bed. So yeah, it sounds like the problem I have with Netflix and HBO as well. I, <laughs> I open the app and it's like, let's watch something interesting to kill some time, and I just sit and scroll for twenty five minutes, and then nope. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this is not to complain though. Uh, I've enjoyed the holiday, especially because in the morning I can spend more time making my cappuccino or regular coffee. I have time to read the newspaper, which I do every day now. But at the same time, it's, it's the same day over and over again. But I think I'm not the only one experiencing this. So I, I just decided that I'll get by and I should easily be able to go up to Christmas 2025. And then I'll probably start complaining that perhaps we need to change something. So that's mostly all the relevant news for me. How about for you? So, so for me, I, can, I don't relate entirely to the you know change in how things are because i've been you know pretty much working the same way and living the same way with my family close by for a long time so we were pretty used to this uh, however one difference that i see a lot with uh, how we do things here in in scandinavia and sweden is uh, some of my colleagues are not even allowed to go outside of their house and if they do it's only one person and and only going to the grocery store uh, so you're, you know, very much limited to what you can do and what you can do outdoors. Whereas here we can still do a lot of things. And I live in the suburbs of Malmo where there's, even on a normal day, I go outside and there's still nobody there. So I can, you know, enjoy the outdoors a lot, which, uh, which I have done. And in my terrace on the backside, I've actually built something that I call the herb wall. So I am... In the early spring, I plant seeds of different herbs and spices, and now they are fully grown into plants. So I have replanted them outside on a vertical herb wall. So I have like a vertical garden because I have a bit limited space. 
So what I'm doing now is the next step is I don't just want to have a, a nice looking herb wall. I also want to automate that because I want to push some kind of angle with IoT and the cloud in there, obviously, because why not? And so I have connected my water hose currently on a timer to the herb wall. So every hour it sprinkles a few dashes of spray water on the entire wall. The next step is to build in the most moisturization sensors or moist sensors to understand if the soil is dry or not and whether to pump more water or not. And instead of having just spraying the entire wall with water, I want to have like these drip things coming down into each of the pots in the in the herb wall. And all of this, of course, connected with Azure IoT so I can run it up in the cloud and get nice dashboards so I can just go to my computer and see how my plants are doing instead of actually going outside. So yeah, okay. that's it. So you mentioned herbs and, and um, I kind of get the idea here. And that's one of the plants I've had for, I think, 10 years. I've, I've lived in the same flat for about seven years now. And every spring we um, talk with my wife, yeah, should we do some herbs thingies? And we're like, no, nah, we, we can just go to the store and get whatever we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, so for me, this is like my my peaceful meditation, if you will. A lot of people do other things. I exercise and I hike and I do gardening. And I I do a lot of growing. I do a, a lot of gardening. And half time of the year, we are self-sufficient with salads and spices and herbs and because I grow everything myself. So it's not just about the fact that I can grow it, but it's also when I work in, in this digital landscape I do every single day, just getting out, use my green fingers for, for something analog is actually quite nice. And then, so of course, nice. with a sprinkle of IoT, just to not go entirely insane. Ab- absolutely. So that's probably something uh, in the coming weeks I need to pick up as well. Not the IoT. But IoT, the, right? But, yeah, that too, but the herbs and, and everything in there. So yeah. I realized that about one-fifth of our audience is is from the U.S. And now if you're thinking about Malmo and Helsinki, so the latitude for Helsinki is about the same as Montreal. And looking from Helsinki to Malmö, where Tobias is, I think the latitude is, is closer to New York, perhaps. Yeah, could be. I, if that's a question, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 kind of my inkling in there. So that partially explains the the differences in weather. Because when you have a sunny weather, it takes about a day or two that we get the sunny weather. But then it just goes past us super quickly, and we get the poor weather when you you again have the great weather in Malmö. That's how it is. All righty. So this episode is about Azure policies, the how, what, and why. And recently we, we spoke about Azure governance. We kind of had this overview on the different components in there. And now we have a look at Azure policies and, and a bit more deeper dive, if you will. So any any opening thoughts, opening words on Azure policy? So one thing that came to my mind when I looked at Azure policy recently is I've, I've been using it for a while and I came across a video from Microsoft that they did, I think late last year where they already then said that the top 300 big customers on Azure are already using Azure policy to kind of enforce compliance of how they do things with resources and how and where they deploy things. So I think, you know, I think that's a good starter to say that, you know, the adoption for Azure policy is pretty good. And it's a great way for you to kind of enforce the policies and and compliance goals you have in your organization. 
So, yeah, and and I I wouldn't make it too complex at the same time. So what often Microsoft likes to do in these customer stories and and this marketing speak is also to say this and this customer is using this and that feature. Sure, it doesn't mean that they use all of the capabilities of that feature. So they might have a customer who uses one policy in one of their subscriptions. And then you can say, okay, this customer is using it. And this applies heavily with Azure policy because it's essentially free of charge. It's a setting, it's a configuration that you modify and you can have one policy or 25 policies and you're still using Azure policy. Uh, so, so top of mind, just to set the, the bar kind of what, what the policy part of Azure governance is, um, from my point of view and, and how I use it is kind of a real-time policy enforcement. So if I'm not the one deploying resources, but I have colleagues or, or partners, or I'm, I'm you know, implementing third-party solutions that are deploying things into my subscription, then I want to ensure that whatever they do, they apply or comply with the, the policies we have in our organization to follow certain guidelines and standards. Um, so there's this real-time policy enforcement. Um, so whenever you deploy, this policy will then see, okay, you're trying to deploy into subscription one, two, three. That is assigned a policy saying that you cannot deploy to anything in Europe or you can only deploy to Europe or whatever it is. Um, you also have policies that can kind of automatically rem uh, remediate or fix things. So if something does not comply with policies, you can have automatic steps taken to fix it, which we'll get into a bit later. Um, so essentially, you know, for me, this means policy management uh, and security because you can enforce security stuff as well at scale. So for me, I have nine or 12 between nine and 12, I'm not sure because it goes a bit up and down, Azure subscriptions that are production workloads running right now. And inside of them, there's a lot of things going on. And there's no way I can manually go into each and every one of them and ensure that things are working. So with policies, I can at scale define the policies that we need to comply with. And if we don't comply, we'll either get an alert or just block that request altogether. Yeah, exactly. And if somebody's listening to this and they have vast experience with group policy objects, the, the Active Directory uh, version of, of setting a policy and, and guidance, uh, in there you typically use the predefined templates. So you have the graphical interface in MMC, the, the management console, and you click enable or disable or, or set different values in there. But what you can also do, you can do your custom admin templates. And policies are these sort of templates. So you get to choose from a set of predefined policies. And one of those would be the set of policies you get from Azure Security Center. And we've mentioned this before. So that's one of my favorites when I provision a new subscription. I might not know beforehand what sort of services that subscription would be running. What I can do is I can enable Azure policy. And as part of Azure policy settings, I can say, pick up all the policy settings from Security Center and let's just apply a blanket policy with all of those individual policies from Azure Security Center. And I think that gives you about 30 to 40 different policies that will automatically apply to the whole subscription. Yeah. 
And that kind of brings us into what is called an initiative, I believe. Yeah. And Azure Policy, when I got started and, and when I tried it out the first couple of times, it was a bit confusing because you had assignments, definitions, uh, initiatives, and all these kind of things. And now there's blueprints. And, you know, for me, the understanding, when I understood, you know, the difference of, of all these things, it was a lot easier to manage it. And so we have an initiative, and that's basically a set of policies to complete a single goal. For example, if you have compliance goals around cost management, or like we briefed earlier, and also in a previous episode, we talked about one of the things I do in all my subscriptions is I enforce the geographical locations or the data centers we can actually deploy things to, because this is not free for everyone to choose. We have specific locations where we need the data to reside. So with an Azure policy or with multiple Azure policies, we can ensure that everything stays within you know, the realm of what we need. And then with an uh, initiative, we can apply several policies. So then we can apply them either to a subscription, uh, to a management group, or to a resource group. So you can kind of have this different scope where you want to deploy them or where you want to assign them. And that's what the uh, Azure policy assignment is. So the I- initiative is a grouping of Azure policies. And an assignment is when you tie that initiative, ergo, a bunch of policies to your subscription or your management group or your resource group. But an assignment can also tie only one policy. So for an assignment, you can say, take this policy and stamp it on to the subscription. Or you can say, take the set of policies, which is your initiative, and stamp it on the, the, the subscription. So initiative, a group of policies. Assignment is how you apply those at what scope to management group, subscription, or resource groups. So for an old school Active Directory person like myself, an assignment is when you choose to deploy or link the policy to whatever, a management group, a subscription, and or a resource group. Yeah, exactly. Because you can define a a load of different policies, but if you don't actually tell the policy where it's supposed to be looking and what it's supposed to be checking for compliance, then of course, nothing will happen. All right, makes makes perfect sense. So we have different types of policies as well. So we have audit policies, which I often see people prefer on using quite a bit because you want to audit what's happening within your subscriptions. So you mentioned you had, what, nine subscriptions in total running yep. different, different things. I think I have four or five myself, and none of those run any business-critical services for now. And what I often do is I run audit policies just to understand what's happening here and there. And and I might be using those also to get data back to understand if something is failing or if I'm, do, I'm trying to do something I shouldn't be doing. Uh, one example here would be that I choose myself that, okay, all the services in this subscription, I prefer to hold them in the North Europe data center. And then when I'm testing something in the same subscription, I might accidentally or on purpose click on West Europe. And then the policy will pick up and say, yeah, you'd probably like to use this different one. But since I'm not enforcing it, I still get to do what I'm planning on doing. Yeah. So audit policies is pretty much a log of events. So you get an audit log of what happened and then you'll get a, you can set up an alert or however you want to see. You can go and say, there's, X amount of non-compliant resources. 
but it doesn't stop you from doing it. Yeah. And then, as you mentioned before, the remediation policies are the ones that let me retry. Uh, I wanted to push down this policy. It failed for some reason. Perhaps a VM was shut down and something that was supposed to happen through the policy didn't really apply. So you might see that in in Azure policy, you have the compliancy uh, view or in Azure Security Center, it will roll them up there as well. Uh, then you can do, do the remediation to say, let's retry, let's try to push this a bit harder to reach our goals so that our compliance score will look green and not yellow or red. And I, I really like that. And one thing to think about with uh, the remediation steps is if you implement some kind of automation around this, and especially if you do this at scale, there can be a lot of changes because you said with this policy, the remediation step is to do this or do that. But how do you then know what happened? Uh, so you can also, and I think this is good to know because I didn't know that when I started out and it took me a while to figure out how do I now, you know, now I have this automatically remediation for for a couple of things, which is great. But how do I know that they were triggered and how do I know that they work or what, what they actually changed? Uh, so we can actually get a change log with remediation. So every remediation action will be audited and the changes are basically in a JSON diff. So you can see the raw data saying that this resource, you try to do this, but we have an automatic remediation that changed that property or that setting to this, and that's done. But that does not happen, of course, without an audit trial. So you can actually go and see it later. And I think this is important to, uh, to understand. And also, if you go into Azure Portal, you, you can then go in and see, okay, what actually happened here? Give me the JSON diff, and you can see this is what I did, and this is what the remediation did to fix that mistake or to enforce the kind of compliance of that policy. Okay, so I get the JSON diff uh, through by going to Azure policy in Azure portal, to click on the policy that perhaps failed with the remediation task. And out of that output, I should be getting the JSON diff. Yeah, now, now you're asking exactly where in the portal. Uh, just yeah. like I would know it from the top of my head, but I mean, go in and click and you'll, you'll find it. Um, but we can put a, a link in the show notes. I know there is some good documentation around this now. Uh, so we can put that in the show notes, exactly how to do that as well. Um, but I think that's pretty cool. Okay. Yeah, definitely. So some of the common use cases for Azure policy, we mentioned the, uh, the geo compliancy a couple of times already. So you can force all of your resources to be in the US or Europe or some very specific location only. Yep. That's definitely one of those. The The other one that I prefer using besides the, the geo-compliancy is cost management, meaning that I try to limit the sort of services uh, all of the other users get to deploy. Because often if you, especially now that summer is approaching and a lot of companies are hiring interns and the, those interns might be working remotely only, because of the corona crisis situation, depending on how it goes in the, in the coming months. So now we have a bunch of interns and we might be giving them access to our test or production Azure subscriptions. So it makes sense that we have some sort of set of policies or an initiative or even a blueprint that ties all of these together so that we can define that 
anybody who's an intern that hasn't gone through our internal training, for example, will not be able to deploy the most expensive VMs or the Cosmos DB instances with request units that, that go through the roof. Yeah, um, and I think that makes sense. And there's one that I particularly like as a use case is, for example, you can ensure that certificates will expire. If you have certificates that will expire in 30 days, uh, you can be made aware of that and take action so you can change it, like things like that. And I know there's now, I don't know if this is already out in production in GA or if it's in preview or they just announced it, but there's this AKS integration also. So you can have policies going kind of deep dive uh, down into AKS as well and check, um, you know, stuff with um, audit and enforce policies inside of AKS. So inside of your AKS clusters, you can apply policies down to pods, namespaces, and even uh, ingress to ensure that you're adhering to the corporate policies inside of a cluster. So not just the resource group level kind of resource, but in the resource group, you have your AKS resource, but inside of AKS, then you have containers and pods and namespaces and whatever. Now that I think it's still in preview, um, you can actually enforce policies all the way down there. So I'm hoping, um, you know, this is something that will spread to more types of resources. So you can check not only the properties of the resource, but actually what's inside of that resource and then what's, you know, the details of what's inside of that, which is pretty cool. So I had a look at the built-in policy definitions because oftentimes you don't really go through them one by one. You need to apply a policy, you get the list, you just pick the one that looks nice or that you really need and you kind of discard the rest. So I went to Microsoft Docs and I'll, I'll make sure to put the link in the show notes. I went to Microsoft Docs to see what built-in policy definitions do we actually have. Here's a couple of really interesting ones. I haven't used them myself, but I'll be sure to start using them. And one of those should be that an API app, so a custom API that you run on app service, typically as a REST API. So the policy is an API app should only be accessible over HTTPS. Makes, makes perfect sense. This should be enabled at all times because I don't think there's a viable use case anymore to do HTTP for an, for an API. So that's definitely one. The other one was uh, authentication should be enabled on your function app. And often when you do these ad hoc function apps because you do serverless and it has to be cool and it just has to work right now. I only have two hours. To, to push it to production. Right click, publish. Yes. <laughs> and, well, that's the easiest way, of course. So that, that's why I often use it for testing. Uh, so authentication should be enabled on your function app. Definitely a policy. And the policy is there to protect you as well, even if you know what you're doing, but sometimes you're too busy or you're not thinking through what you're actually doing or you're automating something, then those policies will save you at the end of the day to stop you from doing things you really shouldn't be doing. Yeah, which kind of brings us into uh, to the space of developers in the sense that a lot of devs, they write like publish to test stuff. And even if this is in your dev subscription, you might want to use caution. Um, and what I, what I like to do um, just from a process point of view is whatever I put into dev follows the same compliance guidelines as we need to enforce in production. And this helps me that already when development happens to ensure 
that we don't have to fix stuff after we try to go into production or, or a test uh, only to realize, oh, like you mentioned, we don't have authentication or we don't use HTTPS or we don't do this or that, then we can already take care of that in dev. So that's also why you can then as assign all of these policies on the dev subscription to ensure that whatever happens in there also complies with exactly the same things you have in production, which I particularly like. Yeah, and, and often with devs, uh, devs typically know an awful lot about a lot of things. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that a single dev might be too interested in anything beyond what they want to achieve. So a dev might have a task to build a custom application and they just pick and choose the different Azure services. They start building it, they deploy it. But it doesn't mean that they would actually consider that am I using Key Vault or am I storing my secrets in the app config file or am I using Azure AD authentication or did I bring my own authentication because I know best. Mm -hmm. So these sort of things are also to... to uh, kind of keep the devs unified, if you will, on certain best practices so that you can say we are compliant. Yeah. And this is where I like Azure Blueprints also, which is um, templates, RBAC or role-based access control, and policies together, which then can bring you kind of this self-service dev experience. So as a dev, if you have a common scenario, you always develop in your company, like you have a microservice setup or whatever it is, and you need to deploy a couple of new resources in dev, you could have a blueprint that creates those resources based off of a template that is already approved uh, with the correct RBAC assignments, ensuring that only you as that dev ha have access to it or whatever it is that you need to do. And then also stamp on the policies uh, that you have being applied on the subscription level to ensure that whatever gets deployed with then your source code later will still be compliant with whatever goes into production later. Uh, so I really like this use of, you know, all these Azure governance parts coming together and blueprints. I, I like this because policies is a part of kind of enforcing how you do things. So I so like that. Are you using blueprints in production now? Is that something that you've included in your workflow besides Azure policies and, and initiatives? I have not used it in production as of now because last time I, I took a deep dive into it, it was in preview. I don't know what the state is now, if it's still in preview or not, um, but I have not used it in production. I have used it for the production dev workload, if you will, like Ergo, yeah. the real dev experience we have. I have used it there, but not for anything that is in the solid production environments because whatever happens in there, I need to ensure and make sure that always works. So I don't want to use the preview capabilities of something I don't, truly understand what changes will come because since it's a preview, it's also clearly stated, we might change things. And running that in a production environment where I have a lot of things going on, yeah, I would probably avoid that. Yeah. Uh, one more note on the predefined, the built-in policies is that there's a lot of policies for virtual machines. So Linux and Windows virtual machines have dozens and dozens of built-in policies. So if you Try to be too clever. If you really want to secure everything and, and you create an initiative with let's secure all the VMs and you add 27 different policies from here, they most probably will overlap with some of your existing settings in those VMs, especially if you migrate those VMs from on-premises to Azure 
and then you drop your Azure policies on top of those, and you all also have your existing GPOs. And the challenge here is that your GPOs might be 20 years old. So it makes sense to perhaps first check what you have in the GPOs and then define what policies do we want to apply or do we want to migrate any of those GPOs to become Azure policies. Yeah, that's a, that's a good tip to, to evaluate that. So let's imagine I find a gap. Okay, we had these GPOs and now we need to make policies for it, but there is no built-in policy. How can you do that? Can you define your own kind of requirements that a resource need to have that property or that you need to have that value on that property or how would you go about that if there is no built-in capability? So once you've gone through the built-in capabilities and they are nicely sorted in different categories and if you can then state that okay something I need does not exist then of course you have multiple opportunities here. One is to create your custom Azure policy which in essence is an ARM template. It's JSON file Uh, But that also forces you to learn how do I describe the need that I have as an Azure policy. So so there's good reference for this, but it will take you a little bit of time to get it just right. The other opportunity, though, is that if you have the need for a VM, there's often a tooling already available to inject something within the VM. But if it's something else, then you need to create your custom Azure policy. Yeah, and this is just JSON. Right. Yeah. Well, just JSON. It's the JSON can be complex for templates sometimes, but I think with the, all the built-in ones, you can take a look at them and then understand the structure. Also, with the documentation, building these should be fairly straightforward. Yeah. Course, there's actually on the use case. There's actually an extension for Visual Studio Code for Azure policies for for creating those. So let's add the link in the show notes as well. Yeah. So one thing that I just came to my mind now is I get a question sometimes when I talk about access in Azure versus policies where policies can enforce things and policies can ensure you're compliant. And I get a question like, is that access control or what is it? Uh, and, and what's the difference between RBAC or role-based access control and, a, and an Azure policy? And uh, that's actually a good question but they are not related in that sense because RBAC or role-based access control, that's pretty much user actions at various scopes. So you have permissions or you have a deny on doing a certain thing at a certain scope. And that can be for a normal user. It can be for a service principal or managed identity or whatever um, is supported by the RBAC um, setup. So, User actions or principal actions at various scopes, that's access control with RBAC. As for policy, that's resource properties at various scopes. It's not access control. Um, so it's during deployment and at existing resources, you can check properties for compliance and then you can automatically remit, remediate them, but it's not about who has access to what. Uh, so that's also a good separation to make RBAC versus policy, it's not the same thing. They don't really relate in that sense. And just like you, if you go back five minutes to when we talked about blueprints, I mentioned in a blueprint uh, that you have templates and then RBAC and then policies, right? So here you can also hear that they're separate things, but they do work together. So with the right RBAC setup, you can only create or 
work with a certain set of resources inside of a subscription or inside of a resource group or at whatever scope. And then the policies can be applied either at that scope or at a higher level to enforce the compliance of that resource based on properties. So, so access control versus properties of resources, pretty much. So once again, the analog back, back to when things were still simple, uh, the RBAC is analog to what you would have in Windows as DACL and SACL. So you had the discretionary access control list and then you had the uh, system access control list for defining the permissions for files and directories uh, under Windows Server or Windows. And policy is akin to GPO again. Yeah. I like how you can go back in time and kind of whatever is now modern in the cloud, you know, the, the capabilities are modernized tenfold, but the concept is the same as it was 20 years ago because we still have the same compliance requirements and organizational requirements. It's just technology changes, but the concept hasn't changed that much, to be honest. Yeah, that's that's true. And and for me, 20 years ago, when I was reading the books and the documentations, and we would have the, the guidance in, in CD-ROMs back in the day, uh, I would read all of them and try to memorize everything because I, I might not have had internet access readily available when I was working on something. Now I just go to my, my preferred search engine and do a search on anything and I can quickly find it. But I still feel that, that you need this, uh, this sort of deeper understanding of the concepts, be it something modern, be it something legacy, because that puts, puts things in perspective in your head. And then when you're working in Azure, you have tens of different services, you have hundreds of different tools and capabilities. And, and when, when you have this deeper understanding of, of, of these capabilities, not specifically on something technical, but the understanding of why do we have this again, I find it makes it so much easier to work with the more complex deployments because you don't need to stress that much about the basics anymore. Yeah. Yeah. All of these are good points. I think from the top of my head, I've exhausted the kind of why, what, and how of Azure policies. Is there anything else you want to cover? No, I, I think we've covered all the essentials in Azure policy. So we have the last bit, word of the day. Uh, let's learn a bit of Swedish and Finnish. Let's start with Swedish again. So the Swedish one is a very simple one. And I, I think we might have brushed on either side of, of these two words in an earlier episode, but something that's becoming increasingly more popular now that everyone is working from home is to have even more kanelbullefika and Kanelbulle means cinnamon bun, and fika means to have a couple of moments for a coffee. I don't know if there's a good international word for that, but have a moment of cookies and coffee. That's pretty much a fika. And in Sweden, it's becoming increasingly more popular to have remote fikas. So we have remote kanelbulle fika, where I sit with a couple of friends I normally meet up with uh, downtown, but we do this now remotely with our kanelbulle and coffee um, in webcams using Microsoft Teams or whatever you know preferred video conferencing solution that you that you use. Okay, so when you do your canal bullet fika, do you do you have to do the canal bullet yourself, like bake it, or do you go down to the store and pick up whatever they have in there? I mean, if if I'm gonna be completely honest, I really like cooking and baking, and 
I would prefer you to do them yourself, but you can get you know, pretty cheap one. If you're at Ikea, which you might not be in the current circumstances, you can get one for 50 cents. Like maybe if we're talking euros, so it's five Swedish kroner. So it's cost basically nothing. And you can also buy a bag of frozen canelbula and bring back home. So that's what we have uh, in the freezer because whenever you need a, a quick coffee call and you need to bring that canelbula with you, you know, you don't have time to spend 40 minutes in the kitchen and then it's going to have a yeast period and whatever. You just go to the fridge and pick them out. It's a bit of a cheating, but it still works for the remote fee cap because nobody really knows. Yeah, true. I often uh, do my own canelbula at home. Uh, it takes about an hour to do the preps and everything and put them in the oven. And then 30 minutes later, you get get, this, get the fresh canelbula out. The downside, though, is that they're often so good. And I do about 20 of those. It's super easy to just justify eating eight of those, <laughs> even if you just <laughs> need like one or two. Yeah, it is good. So what is the finish word? So the Finnish word is something I, I I like to think I invented this, and it's it's a bit more challenging. And I might be the only person in the world who's using this, but this is proper Finnish. And and let me say it first, and then I'll explain what it means. So in Finnish, we might say "pipopassa meininki," and and what it means literally is that it's a phrase that means so as we're heading out. Do we just put on the winter hats or baseball caps and don't bother looking neat or fashionable? As most inevitably, we will not meet with anybody we know. So let's just get this chore over and done with. Wow. So it implies also that are we doing going in a rush? Just get it done. Just put the hat on and go. Or do we need to kind of prepare somehow in case we come up with alternative plans while we're going to do the thing that we were planning to do. Yeah, I get the concept. I mean, we, we do the same thing. If you're just going to the hardware store close by, you know, use whatever you have. But if, if you might end up in a social party, you might consider what you're going to wear. But so what's the word again? So it's three words. So people pass a meaning. People means a hat, typically a winter hat. Uh, passa means on your head. And meaning means whatever we are planning on doing. People pass a meininki. Yeah, fluent. Oh, solid. Yeah, okay. So we can do Cannibale Fika next time with people pass a meininki. Perfect. All right. And I think that's it for this time. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned.